543210. Um, it was suggested to me that I should start that way, ladies and gentlemen, um, because we came in perhaps unusually a couple of minutes early, and um, the conversation, as you may have noticed, suddenly died away and then grew up again. This is, uh, I think, a historic occasion in the history of the Royal Aeronautical Society. The first lecture um, by the test pilots group, which the inaugural lecture of the test pilots group, which was formed um, by the society, the fifth group uh, within the society, in November of last year. Uh, as soon as the, uh, the um, group had been approved, a steering committee was set up under the chairmanship of Mr. Bedford, tonight's lecturer. And he was responsible for ensuring that there was a large measure of support for the group from the test pilots in the United Kingdom. The expressed aim of the group is, and I quote, the general advancement of aeronautical knowledge in the test flying field. And it's hoped that this will be achieved by holding lectures and other functions in London and later on in some of the branches. Support from members in all spheres of aviation will be appreciated. I may say that already we have a number of jobs in prospect for the group to do. The group will also see, uh, seek closer cooperation with other similar bodies, such as the American Society of Experimental Test Pilots, to further mutual knowledge and understanding of test flying problems. Well now, ladies and gentlemen, I have had the privilege of seeing uh, a preprint of Mr. Bedford's lecture, and he deals in some, he goes into some detail in dealing with the um, origins and formation of the group, and therefore I don't think it's appropriate for me to say anything more at this point. He himself will expand the theme of the origin of the group in his lecture. Also, I'm going to say at his wish, uh, a wish that I understand, um, I'm going to say nothing about uh, Mr. Bedford himself, except to record formally that he's an officer of the Order of the British Empire, holder of the Air Force Cross, and a fellow of the Society. He's chief test pilot of the Hawker Siddeley Aviation, uh, of Hawker Siddeley Aviation Limited, and he is, of course, chairman of the steering committee. Well, with that very brief introduction, I'm going to ask Mr. Bedford forthwith uh, to give his lecture on the role of the test pilot. Mr. President, gentlemen, one dislikes very much to start the lecture off by correcting the president in some small way, but I would like to say that my title really is the uh, chief test pilot of the Hawker Blackburn Division, brackets Dunsfold of Hawker Siddeley Aviation. I appreciated your promotion. <laughs> Well, it is an honor, a privilege, and a pleasure to be asked to deliver the inaugural lecture of the Test Pilots Group of the Aeronautical Society here at 4 Hamilton Place this evening. And it's very encouraging, indeed, to see such strong support for the function. And on looking round the room, it's only too apparent that there are many more able and deserving pilots here to deliver this lecture tonight. And if they so wish, the speaker won't hesitate to exchange his position for that of a relaxed member of the audience. 
as no one's volunteered, perhaps it's appropriate firstly to say a few words about the group itself. It was on the 28th of November 1963 that the Council unanimously approved the formation of the test pilots group within the society. And the aim, as mentioned by the President, was the general advancement of aeronautical knowledge in the test flying field. And it's hoped that through the group, the test pilot will be able to make a worthwhile contribution to the objects and purposes of the society, at the same time advancing his own professional knowledge and standing. Some years it had been apparent that there was a general desire amongst test pilots in this country for the formation of a professional body which would obtain the widest possible support. And the constitution of this body, which uh, exercised the minds of all concerned because already in existence were a number of aeronautical and piloting organizations, and it was a little difficult to know whether or not to set up an independent organization or to join an existing one. Well, happily, the most attractive answer was found in the form of this group within the society. And some of the reasons that influence the decision are as follows. The society is well established on sound professional foundations and represents the highest aeronautical authority in the country. And it has a not inconsiderable association with aviation that dates back to 1866 and extends for nearly a century from balloons and aircraft through to the modern space age. Within the influence of the society, the group will avoid becoming watertight and narrow in its outlook because of the close tie-up and support possible from all the various spheres of aviation. This will make for a better understanding of mutual problems, which in turn can only accelerate the development of aviation products and perhaps in some way reduce expenditure. The activities of the group won't have to be concentrated in one area because there are branches of the society in existence throughout the country and of course a number of countries abroad. On top of this, already in existence are legal and administrative committees that are established, thus obviating the need for time and effort in this direction. We have within the society already some 40 current test pilots and um, a number of these pilots have in fact given lectures to the society in recent years, indicating the existence of a satisfactory framework from which to develop this group. Well, after the group was approved, a steering committee was formed in conjunction with the secretary of the society to get the group into order, and the committee was made large so that regardless of flying commitments, it was certain of having a representative gathering here. This steering committee will be dissolved after a year of operation and a new committee elected at the annual general meeting in spring of 65. Now the group very warmly invites the support from present, past and future test pilots from civilian and service sources. And although all members of the group must eventually become members of the society, we don't intend to harry people into membership. Nevertheless, for those who are not already members of the society, this is quite a good opportunity to do something about it and send off that completed application form. It's also appropriate for others to consider whether the time is not ripe for them to apply for transfer to a higher grade in the society. Naturally, we shall value the support of all members in all spheres of aviation at lectures and other such functions because it's considered essential to encourage the best understanding of our mutual problems so that the test pilot becomes integrated with instead of isolated from all the aspects of aviation. 
The intention to commence the group's activities on modest lines with only four lectures in 1964-65, these taking place here in London with possible repeats at the, uh, some of the branches. On a longer-term basis, the committee will endeavour to arrange lectures and discussions in areas in the country in which a particular subject is likely to stimulate most interest. The lectures will be on Friday evenings, commencing autumn of this year, and the following subjects are proposed. Firstly, erect and inverted spinning of a swept-wing aircraft. Secondly, low-speed handling with particular reference to the super-stall. Thirdly, the X-15 by a United States Air Force pilot. And thirdly, engine development and flight testing. As was mentioned, we hope for a close cooperation with the American Society of Experimental Test Pilots and other such bodies so that we can encourage the bond of friendship that exists the world over and to further mutual knowledge and understanding of test flying problems. One of the first tasks of the test pilots group was to detail its chairman in a firm but diplomatic manner to deliver this inaugural lecture and hence the presence of your speaker tonight and his somewhat worried expression. A broad subject was selected for this lecture, namely the role of the test pilot. It's not, however, the intention to confine the subject matter strictly to this, but to overlap into some related areas affecting the test pilots. Well, the origin of successful test flying was that famous 11-second flight made by Orville Wright at Kitty Hawk on the 17th of December 1903. And on that day, the Wright brothers made four flights, piloting alternately the final flight by Wilbur, lasting nearly a minute and covering 300 yards. They approached their problems in a most scientific way. They studied previous experimental work. They designed and built a wind tunnel and carried out many experiments on wing sections. Incredibly, they involved a shape almost identical with the modern RAF-14. Here, then, was the closest integration of pilot, scientist, designer, inspector, stressman, aerodynamicist, chief flight development engineer, all dovetailed into a highly efficient two-man team. Surely, this achievement can never be bettered. No complex machines here involving control zones, communications, MOA, defense policies, ARB, ANAEE, committees, and the like, just courage, and determination to get on with a job and fly, correct deficiencies and progress. How and why have things changed? Well, the nature of this lecture was prompted by a member who wrote, I reckon the biggest problem facing the test pilot today is, what is my job? The reason for this is that aircraft have become more and more complicated and the test pilot has become one of a large team of engineers and designers. The, the traditional exchange between Buffett, Boffin and Pilot has steadily dwindled since the days of men like Cody, who were both Boffin and Pilot. The whole team has been affected in this way, but the Pilot is worst affected because he is restricted to influencing the design by reporting. This statement was considered by the steering committee and needless to say stimulated such a reaction that the substance of what emerged has been collated to try and put over some general viewers on the role of the test pilot, what his problems are, what can be done about them in the future to ensure that his experience and knowledge is used with a maximum effectiveness. Firstly, what is the pilot's task? Test pilots are employed in service and civilian establishments and the scope of their flying activities covers the testing of production aircraft, 
testing of aircraft inspected and modified at maintenance units, the testing of engines, systems and equipment, and finally the well-known research and development testing, including certification testing prior to release to the customer. The pure flying tasks of the pilot, although large in variety, are easy to define under such broad headings as performance, handling, systems, armament, testing and study of flight test schedules, SB 970, AGARD flight test manual and so on, give the reader full details of what is involved and the standards that have to be met. Pilot's job in flight development remains essentially what it always has been, namely to observe and report on the ability of the aircraft to meet specification and to search and eradicate unsafe features. Undoubtedly, the actual job of test flying provides the most interesting side of the pilot's role, but it must be emphasized that it represents only a relatively small proportion of his responsibilities. Here, the pilot uses his skill and experience to carry out a test program, and when he lands, three fundamental questions have to be answered. What did he do? What happened? What do we do now? The answers to the first two questions are just plain statements of fact to be backed up later by analysis of quantitative results. The reply to the third, however, often depends on the influence and authority the pilot commands within his own organization and the extent to which he has been consulted in the embryo days of the project. These factors will vary from firm to firm and establishment to establishment and will be influenced by the effectiveness of a communication system from pilot to scientist, engineer or designer. Communication is vital to the success of the job and certain items emerging from the, flight, from the test program may require immediate action prior to a written report. The framing of reports and transmission of information will depend on individual organizations. But immediately after a flight, an industrial firm will normally have a debriefing through the department of the chief flight development engineer and thence through to the departments of chief designer, chief engineer, as deemed appropriate for the particular flight. Certain recommendations made by the pilot may receive unanimous support, whereas others may require considerable discussion before action is taken. Deciding what is wrong is easy. Deciding why is more difficult and getting action quickly is the toughest part of the job and often involves a good deal more tenacity than the actual flying program. The pilot must set his sights high regarding the standard to be achieved. But on the other hand, it is often necessary to accept some sort of compromise in order to get the aircraft into operational service within a reasonable time scale. It is just as useless to have one or two perfect prototypes as it is to have hundreds of production aircraft coming into service on time but grossly deficient. Never was the saying, the best is always the enemy of the good, more appropriate than when dealing with the flight development and clearance of aircraft. No one likes burdening the aircraft and the operational pilot with limitations, and therefore we like to see the very best in handling and performance qualities and the highest degree of operational effectiveness. Unfortunately, this is not always compatible with the right delivery date, and the pilot, be he service or civilian, may have to be cruel to be kind and realistic. He must use his judgment and experience to view the whole project in depth and weigh up all the factors of safety, effectiveness, and in-service date, 
and as a result he may have to agree to accept some relaxation in standard. Failure to do this may hazard the future of the project and severely affect its sales potential elsewhere. Too often one hears it says, said, especially when dealing with military aircraft, that such and such a feature may be all right for the test pilot, but it's unacceptable for service use. Don't ever underestimate the squadron pilot. He is in the majority a man of very high caliber and ability and a most adaptable individual. He soon learns to fly his aircraft to the limit and in a number of specialized areas he can show the test pilot a thing or two. Well, how can we strive for the highest standard whether it concerns the testing of engines, equipment, or research and development projects? One of the most important aspects is that the fundamental thinking and discussion must include the pilot at an early stage. And for this reason, we must ensure that a happy and close relationship exists between the pilot, scientist, and engineer, and that each understands some of the other, other's problems. And I'm happy to say that this is characteristic of a large number of organizations today. Within some of these organizations, such an um, atmosphere exists and is evidenced in civilian firms, for example, by the pilot and flight development team being closely linked where necessary with the design, stress, and installations department and calling for specialist advice as the program requires. By such means, not only is the size of the flight development team kept to sensible proportions, but the various specialist departments are kept in touch with current flight development difficulties and get a good feeling for the problems of practical aviation and can therefore ensure that future designs benefit from this experience. It is of particular interest that the late John Derry touched on this need for mutual understanding in his lecture on high-speed flight to the Society in 1951. He said, the author considers it is essential to have an overlapping in the spheres of knowledge of pilot and scientist. This may indicate agreement with recent suggestions that fully trained aerodynamicists or engineers should be converted to test pilots. But this appears to be the wrong way to do it. A considerable amount of theory should be understood by the pilot and he should be trained in it. That is precisely what the Empire Test Pilot School is doing and doing extremely well. After such a training, it's up to the pilot to maintain an up-to-date knowledge of all theory that concerns his work. The specialist problems of higher mathematics and engineering are not necessarily required by the pilot. He and the scientist must speak the same language, but not the same dialect. These words are as pertinent today as in 1951, and it is encouraging to see the major part that the ETPS has played over the last 20 years in training suitably qualified pilots to take their place in responsible positions in the test flying world. The school has done more perhaps to establish an effective means of communication between pilot and scientist than any other organization. Why not now take this a step further and admit a few promising young engineers and scientists to part of the annual ETPS course? Not to train them as test pilots, but to broaden their outlook and give them a better appreciation of practical problems of aviation. As an alternative or complementary suggestion, why not attach some of the up-and-coming young test pilots for a week or so to the training grounds of the scientist and engineer? An improvement in pilot-scientist relationship can only assist in providing the best project in the shortest time scale, 
But this is only one of the ingredients of success. The complexity of modern aircraft and their systems demand a much higher degree of continuity between manufacturer and customer than has sometimes been achieved in the past. The more lengthy development periods must be matched by a corresponding increase in tour of duty of the associated military test pilots and of the service staffs employed at MOA, MOD and particularly in the operational requirements departments. There may be much resistance to such a move within the personnel sections on the grounds that such action may not be in the best interests of a balanced career. On the other hand, if the correct project is not ready at the right time, this may have a much more serious effect, not only on the officer's career, but on the service for which he works. In the past, a service test flying background has not always been viewed as favorably in some circles as it should have been. The time has now come for it to be looked on as a valuable qualification and as an experience with which to improve a man's career in the best interests of both the service and the individual. Too often the attitude has been, so-and-so has been away from the service for three years attached to the ministry. Such an example was experienced by the speaker when questioned by his seer on the subject of an application for the Empire Test Pilot School in 1949. The CEO said, do you realize that this will prejudice your chances of becoming chief of air staff? Swallowing in a slightly embarrassed way, the only answer that emerged was, yes, sir, but I'm quite happy to settle for deputy. <laughs> this illustrates a rather unsatisfactory situation because contrary to some opinions, a test flying background gives the pilot a thorough understanding of the inevitably long uphill struggle involved in developing aircraft, engines, and equipment, and it enables him to look with added experience, knowledge, and confidence into the future. Surely such a background, in addition, of course, to a normal service career, is perhaps one of the most valuable qualifications for staffs dealing with operational requirements, because it gives them some insight with which to assess the projects submitted by industry and to discuss and understand some of the technicalities involved it may discourage some of the more ambitious members for asking for the entire moon. In this way, the staff will be better able to apply their own correction factors to any over-optimistic brochures, and the customer in the long run will stand the best chance of getting what is best for his particular job. Reverting back now to the specific title of this lecture, one member wrote that in his opinion, the place of the test pilot is, if anything, more clear today than ever before, as with increased complexity, it becomes steadily more important to have test pilots capable of giving a clear definition of what's practical and what's impractical from an operating viewpoint at a sufficiently early stage in gestation of a design to prevent time-wasting and costly mistakes being made. The pilot can often be instrumental in originating major changes affecting flight safety well before the first flight and this must be a major area in the test pilot's work and will continue to be so just so long as man is required to close the control loop. How long will this be? This question is perhaps best answered by quoting a remark made by that veteran test pilot Chuck Yeager some years ago. He said, where in hell can you get such an efficient and inexpensive computer weighing only 200 pounds in full-scale production the world over and produced with entirely unskilled labor. <laughs> well, in spite of autopilots, 
order stabilization and other forms of automation, the pilot will continue to play his part in aerospace activities, to fly aircraft, to monitor systems, make decisions, take action, come back and report on the quality of the characteristics. Qualitative assessment is an essential adjunct to quantitative measurement, and this latter is bordering on useless without the former. The pilot injects realism into the flight test program and the instrumentation results that literally seem to pour out in increasing volume these days. It is important for him to carry out basic checks on the computed information to ensure that what he experienced in flight bears a close re resemblance to what emerges from the theoretical analysis. Although figures play a necessary part, they may indicate a feature to be unacceptable when in fact it is acceptable to the pilot, and vice versa. Although it can be argued that the scope of the seat of the pants test pilot has diminished of latter years, the sensitivity of the human being to noise, visibility, feel, and smell cannot be replaced by a soulless recording device. The pilot can quickly go around the flight envelope of an aircraft and pinpoint the large majority of problem areas in only a few flights. But necessary as it is, one challenges the ability of instrumentation alone to give the designer such a quick, broad picture. No one denies that adequate quantitative information is a must on most flight test programs, but such information is worthless unless the analyzer and the pilot work closely together to ensure that the results are correlated to the qualitative behavior, i.e., what happened in the cockpit. In simple terms, the test pilot is the designer's hand on the final product, and he must convey back to the designer how the project behaves in a manner as convincing as though the designer were himself a test pilot. In achieving this ideal, the test pilot may sometimes meet with an understandable resistance to accept the fact that practice differs from the theoretical predictions of simulators, computers, and wind tunnel tests. It's a matter of psychological interest to those concerned with flight development that any deficiencies that can be closely observed from the ground are viewed much more sympathetically and more speedily rectified than those occurring miles away from base. This is because seeing an incident gives the engineer an indelible impression and a close feeling which stimulates more interest than just a verbal or written report supplemented with instrumentation records. Where such visual observation is not possible by the engineer, and this is of course for about 90%, or so of the flying of conventional <laughs> aircraft, the pilot may have to use much tact and effort to put over the problem in an effective and digestible, wider field than his public <coughs> image may suggest. And the actual time spent test flying is but a minute proportion of his day. He has to consider the future planning involved to meet the demands of testing and developing the new project. Will the runways be suitable in length and strength? Have he and his fellow pilots been given the best background for tackling the new job? Is the approach lighting and night flying equipment adequate? Do the firefighting facilities meet the official requirements? Is the air traffic control equipment and staff on the necessary scale? Will there be available uh, suitable chase aircraft and so on? These and many other questions have to be answered in action. 
dovetail in with this come medicals, annually when you're young, but six monthly when you're in the forties. Civil and military instrument rating tests, decompression testing, sea survival training, lectures, presentations, committees, demonstrations, and even making peace with irate, noise-sensitive neighbors. One of the most serious airborne problems which affects the test pilot today is the gradual erosion of the so-called free airspace and the mushroom-like growth of control zones and airways with its resultant adverse effect on test flying efficiency in terms of time, money and safety. It's therefore well worth spending a few minutes on this subject. It can be solved, but it will be costly and will require the major airspace users to have a better appreciation of the difficulties of R&D test flying than they, some of them appear to have at the moment. How can this situation be improved? Radioing communications play an important part, but these must be simple to save time and all frequencies must be discreet since background conversations can ruin a test flight as effectively as an engine failure. Frequency changes must be kept to an absolute minimum, ideally using only one frequency with possibly a secondary one pre-selected. Test programs invariably embrace a wide envelope of speed, G and altitude and in early days they may, may be associated with severe engine and airframe limitations which call for constant attention inside the cockpit. To this must be added the need to control several different sets of instrumentation, some with a very limited running time. It is essential therefore to have a big improvement in the long-range radar cover to provide general navigational assistance and specifically to prevent aircraft from infringing controlled airspace. Radar identification must be quick, accurate, and simple. And the large null areas characteristic of so many radars must be covered by a supplementary system. With more and more emphasis on low-level operations, adequate low-altitude radar cover assumes greater importance. But currently, such facilities appear to be grossly inadequate, if in existence at all. Radio triangulation fixer services should be increased. The scope of certain independent airfield radars may have to be expanded to permit efficient handover from airfield radar to sector radar and back. A few airfields are already equipped in this way and the system works well provided it's backed up by a sufficient number of telephone tie lines. Test and chase aircraft must be equipped with a radar identification system, good navigational aid such as TACAN. Navigation by radio alone is surely archaic, but nevertheless, many R&D aircraft today have to try and use this system. There are at the moment civil plans for a formidable expansion of controlled airspace. There are military plans for controlled airspace for training purposes. But what about serious consideration for one or two big test and general flying areas? Such a need is at once apparent if one visualizes a modern flight test program on a high-performance aircraft superimposed in three dimensions on a map showing controlled airspaces and danger areas. The resultant picture is just like a spider's web trapping the aviator in a chaotic mess of airways, control zones, parachuting zones, artillery ranges and wild bird reserves. Yes, even the birds have an authorized local flying area. So surely it's not too much to ask for a little less restriction for the test pilot in the future. Much has been said about the test pilot, his work, 
and his problems. Now, what sort of a chap is he? Looking round the room tonight, you see a remarkably mixed bag of humanity. Tall pilots, short ones, some thin and some like the aircraft they fly, getting heavier with development. Some dark, some fair, some good-looking, some not so good. Some with a happy, carefree disposition, others looking as if they carry all the cares of the industry on their shoulders. But one thing they all have in common is a keenness to fly. And quoting John Derry again, he said that the test pilot must be first and foremost a pilot with a necessary temperament and keenness on flying itself. In the air, he must be determined and patient. He must try everything more than once. Many convincing examples have been experienced of false impressions which can be registered when several things are happening in a very short space of time. Such incidents must be fully analyzed by the pilot and auto-observer results. Contrary to popular opinion, the test pilot must possess a good fear. As an experienced test pilot of the past once said, fear is the pilot's governor. A complete absence of fright will result in poor test results and often catastrophe. It's not certain by any means that the test pilot is the right person to draw up his own specification. However, several members have submitted ideas on the design characteristics of the ideal test pilot and some of these are included as follows. He should have a sound operational flying background and possess flying skill of high quality. He should have correct training for test flying, either via suitable schooling in ind industry or through ETPS to one of the military test establishments. This automatically assumes that his educational background is suitable. He should have perseverance and determination. He should be capable of accurate, honest, objective observation and reporting. He should be capable of independent, analytical and constructive criticism and sound, balanced judgment. He shouldn't have a personality which makes his relations with other members of the team difficult. In fact, he must be something of a diplomat and learn to disagree agreeably, but never fearing to dig his heels in where necessary. And finally, he should have the patience of Job. It's doubtful if any pilot would claim to meet this specification because, like any other human being, he must admit to having the odd unsatisfactory design characteristic if he's really honest with himself. Whoever the pilot, he must always endeavor to keep up to date in his particular field, both on the practical and theoretical side. It is important that he should keep as closely as possible in touch with similar types of work, not only throughout the country, but the whole world. Rivalry between firms and national security have to be respected, but exchanges of information and experience between pilots is of the utmost value. In this respect, it is good to hear of the exchange of visits that has taken place in latter years between the various test pilot schools in the United Kingdom, America, and France. What does the future hold for the test pilot? The answer to this is tantamount to attempting to assess civil and military aerospace activities in the years to come. No one will deny the increasing role of civil air transport in the years to come. The aircraft involved varying from rotary wing devices and small executive aircraft through the medium-sized models to the large, heavy, subsonic types. Such a background paves the way for the supersonic transports of tomorrow. But as in every age, the pessimists with their red flag mentality will think of many good reasons for not progressing at such a pace.
that if a worthwhile aviation business is to survive and prosper, we must always look ahead and be prepared to take bold but balanced steps into the future. There will be enormous problems to solve, but doing the impossible is pretty routine in aviation. It's just the miracles that create the headaches. With the so-called nuclear stalemate, one now sees the world military aviation pendulum swinging back substantially towards an increase in manned conventional aircraft and weapons systems. In almost complete contradiction to the predictions of that unfortunate 1957 defense white paper, the wisdom of which was bitterly challenged by industry at the time. One might now justifiably ask, where are these missiles that can replace the man? The answer is that some exist with a limited capability, but they possess no flexibility and little mobility. In fact, recently they were described as making a defense system muscle-bound. Missiles are completely ignorant and irresponsible. They possess no intelligence. They cannot interrogate and decide the target that they are about to destroy, whether it is an enemy bomber or an innocent civil transport full of men, women, and children. Once launched, there is no turning back. Hence the emphasis is back on manned aircraft. And what does this mean? First, training. Pilots, whether civil or military, will require instruction on suitable primary and advanced trainer aircraft in preparation for the service types. The military advanced trainer, as in the past, may also feature in operational training and perhaps even include a limited operational capability, but care must be taken not to overdo it. If one thinks of the decline in overseas bases and the consequent need for long ferry flights, the complexity of the modern nav attack system, the introduction of high-speed low-level operations, and the arrival of V-star characteristics, a future trainer embracing all these characteristics is likely to be large, expensive, difficult to maintain, and therefore perhaps not capable of a sensible solution by one single type of aircraft. Leading on to the operational types, one sees the nuclear V-bombers, bombers with us for some years to come, aging a little in their new, exhausting, low-level environment. Then will come the phasing in of the sophisticated, high-performance TSR-2 with its full nuclear and conventional weapon capability capable of low-level supersonic penetration of enemy terrain below the radar screen, regardless of the weather. This will be followed by the Hunter replacement, the P-1154, described as a simple and robust V-style strike reconnaissance fighter, designed to operate away from prepared bases with a minimum of logistic support, a universal mobile fire engine for trouble spots that flare up and down. Trouble spots that no nuclear weapons or Polaris submarine can deal with. Transports will play a bigger part than ever before, carrying a huge load of troops, equipment and fuel. Some will be V-star, others conventional. With the serious foreign submarine threat, a new generation of maritime aircraft is assured. Rotary wing craft will continue in their unique way to make an effective contribution to aviation. Carrier aircraft for strike, anti-submarine, rescue, and interceptor purposes appear to be with us for some years to come. It is, however, a sad and sobering thought that one of the high-performance airframes involved is not to be designed and built in this country. 
the Army will require its light communications reconnaissance and rotary wing aircraft. One trusts that those in authority will insist on some more pure research projects, such as the successful efforts in blind landing, the work on low-speed handling of slim deltas, and not forgetting some years ago the high-performance work on the ferry delta which held the world speed record for a remarkably long period. Incidentally, whilst on the subject of research testing, it appears highly desirable to consider taking a page out of the NASA book by employing a number of permanent top-grade test pilots at the research establishments. This will ensure some continuity between pilot and scientist and ensure that the pilot is included in their fundamental thinking. It's just as important to continue with a steady turnover of service test pilots at these establishments to ensure that thoughts on the future are colored by reality and an up-to-date knowledge of the latest operational techniques. If we revert back to all the aforementioned aircraft and now add the associated engines, systems and equipment, it takes little imagination to see that the future of the test pilot is assured for many years to come. Just a word of caution about our future projects. Too often in the past, we as a country seem to have produced highly specialized aircraft to satisfy the unique requirements of our own services and airlines, and consequently the overseas sales have been severely restricted, and the project has not always been in the best interests of the country's economy. A much broader outlook and more international cooperation appears necessary on future requirements, even if it means the UK customer accepting some sort of compromise. This statement should not, under any circumstances, be interpreted as condoning a joint aircraft to meet the needs of the world's navies, air forces, armies, and marines, for example. On a much longer-term basis, we must all hope that eventually this country will get involved with manned spacecraft. This is perhaps some uh, international cooperation. And it would not be surprising in years to come to see a vehicle embracing V-Stall at the one end of the flight envelope and the performance of a Super X-15 for orbital operations at the other. What part, part will the pilot play in space? An NSA astronaut said, the pilot is in the control loop in Gemini and Apollo, not because he is a man, but because space experience to date shows that he offers more assurance of mission success than any other device. He possesses unique capabilities in system management and vehicle control. The man's judgment and motor skill are so imperative that it will be impossible to complete the mission without him. In addition to being an important part of the transmission system, the properly trained aviator is one of the best observers and recorders of scientific phenomena in captivity today. In initial space activities, there was a reluctant toleration of limited pilot control, but this has now led to an, <coughs> to an attitude which insists that man be the primary element whenever a better overall operation will result. So, ladies and gentlemen, this is what a look into the crystal ball reveals as the future of the test pilot. It is important to ensure that the background acquired by test pilots of long standing is not eventually frittered away, but that it is utilized perhaps by including the pilot as an executive in control of a specific research or development project. Within the ministry establishments, it's most encouraging to see a number of senior appointments now going to 
test pilot trained officers. Well, before ending this lecture, I would like to pay a special tribute to the designers, scientists, and engineers with whom the test pilot works, and to express our admiration and thanks to them for their creative achievements and for their courage and determination to stride ahead despite the formidable obstructions, be they technical or political. It's most reassuring to have men of this caliber behind the projects with which we're so vitally associated. And we hope that through the Test Pilots Group of the Royal Aeronautical Society, we shall in all enjoy an even greater understanding of each other's problems for the betterment of the final product. In conclusion, the success and future of this group will depend on the efforts and enthusiasm of all its members and your support, therefore, at the lectures and functions and any suggestions or ideas you may have will be warmly welcomed. Special thanks are due to the various members of the Society for their guidance and encouragement for the formation of this group. And finally, ladies and gentlemen, thank you all very much for attending and for listening so patiently. say that I hope very much that uh, Mr. Bedford's lecture will uh, stimulate a long and um, interesting discussion. I'm going to ask um, Wing Commander Woodcock of the Aeroplane and Armament Experimental Establishment at Boston Down if he will be good enough to open the discussion. I had hoped to put this question from the obscurity of the back of the hall. However, Mr. Bedford, I think you said the test pilot must learn to accept a reduction in standards. Um, with the failings of human nature, I rather feel this is a disturbing statement to make, particularly as we at Boscombe Down do not now have the pleasure of competitive testing of two or more designs based on the same specification. I wonder if you could call on Captain Hickson to say a few words and response to that. Um, Mr. President, ladies and gentlemen, um, looking around the hall this evening and viewing the galaxy of talent from the headquarters of the Ministry of Aviation, I rise with a certain amount of trepidation to speak on this subject. But um, undoubtedly the sages will get up and put me right in due course. At least I hope they will. But having observed this process CA release now over some 18 years, I think I might say a few words on the military side. I believe the answer to this question should be divided into two halves, one associated with military aircraft, the other civil aircraft, because they are distinct problems. And perhaps I could ask uh, somebody from the civil side like uh, Mr. Davis to get out his broad cuff and play us a few words of it later on. But on the, in the military field, the requirement is always probing a little beyond what we've done before. This means that the design itself is not a finite art. <coughs> We're starting off 
to something which is not finite. Then there are a number of factors which affect the aircraft itself. Perhaps the first of these is the goodness or badness of the design and the design team. Dealing with something that's not finite, it is very difficult to get a fixed standard. So there is bound to be flexibility in that particular field. The next is the number of aircraft available for the development program. We're always hamstrung by somebody's purse strings. We've never got enough aeroplanes to really put a development-proving program in as we wish. And this, again, will tie us. The next thing that affects the aeroplane is the stability of the requirement during the design stage. So often in the military field, in particular, somebody says, that's a good idea, let's try that. And the it is seldom that the final requirement sealed is the same as the initial requirement. It's stretched, it's got better. And finally, we're always attempting to tie the release date to a particular date. Somebody has shot their mouth off at some big political meeting, and the aeroplane's got to be in service on the 1st of April whenever it is. And whatever happens, we're tying ourselves to a fixed date. Now this means we start with something that is more or less fluid. We feed into it a lot of parameters and have no elastic left in the system. Something's got to give. And it's a matter, really, you pay your money and you take your pick. So far, thing that's been given is the standard of the release. Now whether this is right or wrong is another matter. But you cannot possibly tie the whole lot together and have it completely rich. Now those are my views on it. And it is worth looking at American practice and see what they do in this respect. And I think you will find that their practice is very similar to ours. And if Group Captain Moss has anything you'd like to say on this subject, or any of the other members? <clears throat> President, I, I don't think really I would like to expand very much on uh, Ken's rather <coughs> uh, comprehensive summation, except to say from, clearly from a military point of view, the introduction period and when a weapon system is going to be of any value militarily is clearly limited. Uh, even from when the date the project is born, uh, <coughs> it is obsolete. And therefore, militarily, there's clearly a very firm requirement to get this system into the hands of the uh, operational units as soon as quickly as possible. And um, clearly, this has got to be an effective system. But on the other hand, uh, if we do try and produce the optimum 
system in every way. This can only be produced, I think, ultimately, when it is in fact obsolete and therefore useless as a military vehicle. The next name that I have is that of Mr. Tom Frost of Bristol City Engines. I learned at TPS that I couldn't outshow Captain Hickson, so I slapped a car up here and used the microphone. <coughs> he was my instructor. I was fascinated by the speaker's remarks on uh, this growth of the air traffic system, which is uh, uh, slowing down, I think, the uh, rate at which we can test fly. But I disagree with him that uh, anything we do is going to stop this. The uh, civil air traffic is expanding, the amount of traffic is expanding, and I think we've got a bow to this. Uh, otherwise, we don't sell aeroplanes. But uh, I've been extremely fortunate in the last two or three years in being allowed to travel to the uh, United States and to France and fly some of their high-speed aeroplanes. And uh, it is incredible when you make the comparison between their facilities and our facilities. And by this, I mean they're so far ahead in in lengths of runway available, radar facilities, uh, airspace for supersonic testing, that uh, straight away there's a, an atmosphere of relaxed uh, testing as soon as you get airborne on your first flight that we haven't enjoyed in this country for years and years and years. Um, looking back not too long ago, there was a, a scheme uh, started by the ministry and shelved, unfortunately, on the usual poverty-stricken basis of uh, linking up, I've forgotten the names of the airfields now, but Twinwood Farm, Thurley, you know the area, RE Bedford as it is now, and making this a really excellent test facility uh, with all the sort of uh, aids to navigation and uh, uncontrolled airspaces that we need. And uh, I'd very much like to ask Speaker, anybody from BAC, uh, or the Ministry, whether they feel that the uh, the airfields we have in this country are adequate for the aeroplanes like Concorde, TSR2, um, that are coming up in the near future, so that we can obtain from uh, the limited test line we get nowadays uh, to uh, extract from every flight the maximum value. Mr. Bedford suggests that Mr. Godfrey Autry might like to say something on this. Mr. President, ladies and gentlemen, I do endorse what Mr. Frost has just said. I think we're approaching this in a very amateurish and unprofessional way, this high-speed flying in the country. Whether this is brought about through lack of money or whether it's lack of realization of this particular problem, I don't know. But I think had we been given this facility at what is now known as Bedford, and this plan had gone ahead, I think we'd have been very much better place than we are today. And I'm sure there's probably someone in this audience here this evening who can tell us the reason why this project never came to full fruition. The facilities the Americans have in Ed Edwards Air Force Base is not only the size of the base, but also the, w the wonderful weather that they have there, and this is something we can never hope to compete with in this country, but surely we could compete by providing the other facilities, the man-made facilities, and make the, the task of the test pilot in research flying so much easier. This 
nine-to-five attitude which one gets with the radar facilities that are made available from time to time is, is not compatible with test flying in this country. We are weather limited, we are limited in so many ways with airways and unless we get full support we're just going to go struggling along in a very pathetic manner. I'd like someone from the Ministry to tell us why we've been left in this state and what they are hoping to do to give us better facilities for the future. It suggested to me that Wing Commander Kirtley might uh, like to <laughs> comment on this one. Speaker, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, my, my cuff's not very large, I'm afraid, nor am I amongst this galaxy of talent that I've heard of in the Ministry of Aviation, merely a very lowly member. Nevertheless, I, I do agree with the two questioners that uh, went up, Tom Frost and Godfrey Orty. I, I do personally feel that our facilities are inadequate, I, I agree. And <coughs> certainly, from amongst our small staff that we have in Director General of Flying's department, we are at this very moment looking into something uh, along these lines. It is purely an exercise at the moment because after all we are fairly low down in the establishment. I would like to also bring out this point about facilities for high-speed flying which was also mentioned. Um, as I'm quite sure you know better than I do, for a normal 60-mile supersonic run at a reasonable altitude, you're going to uh, cover an area of about 2,000 square miles with your bank. Um, it's all very well to say we ought to provide overland facilities in this country, but of course we have got this rather large problem of public opinion and reaction, which is not quite such a problem in America where there are vast tracts of unpopulated desert. Uh, incidentally, um, a little off the subject, but still to do with this overland supersonic bangs, I'm quite sure that quite a few of you may have read of one of the results of the Oklahoma City experiment. Some dear lady wrote in and said that every time there was bang, her brassier burst. <laughs> June is busting out all over. But anyway, I, I do agree, Mr. President, that the facilities we have got are not sufficient in this day and age. And frankly, I wish I was in a much better position, more, more money, and uh, I could do something more about it. We are trying. It has been suggested to me that I should invite Morian Morgan. Um, I, I don't know really why I should say it has been suggested to me, but, uh, because I, I thought of doing it in any case. Uh, but may you hold your fire? Yes, we'll, uh, we'll have a salvo from um, controller of aircraft later. Would anyone uh, from the audience like to contribute to this? May I ask incidentally that uh, since we are taping the proceedings, uh, anyone who gets up to contribute to discussion should please give his name and affiliation. Bring up a point if I may. Um, my name is Captain Brown. I'm the operational requirements staff of the Director of Naval Air Warfare. Uh, Mr. Bedford did bring up the point that he believed that the operational requirements staffs in the services should have, if possible, a large number of test pilots amongst them. Well, I think it might be a matter of interest to him to know that all the pilots on the future requirements staff of the Naval Air Warfare Division are indeed test pilots. I'm afraid they too must largely be held responsible 
are backing this aeroplane, which Mr. Bedford didn't mention by name, but which seemed to cause a ghost of a flutter to cross his brow. Now, I would like to make a point to him. Maybe it is not the operational requirement staff that are the only people that need to have a searching look at their composition. I often wonder if the industry's test pilots are not guilty of being a little behind in keeping up with the operational side of the job. Maybe this isn't entirely their own fault, but how many of them are really fully cognizant with modern operational techniques, modern operational requirements? How many of them have a real genuine appreciation of what's wanted? I venture to suggest not very many. Perhaps, again, I say the fault is not all theirs. There was a time during the war when we allowed test pilots to go to operational squadrons on attachment for a short period to catch up with this deficiency. Perhaps the time has again come when the industry should ask for this facility to be given to them. I think the point made by Captain Brown there is a very valid one. I'm sure that industry would warmly welcome the opportunity of attaching their pilots to the operational squadrons from time to time to get right up to date, because it's inevitable that on the operating techniques one must fall behind unless you're in constant practice with the modern complexity of a Navitech system. And if there is a machine that allows the industry test pilots to take part in squadron flying, I'm sure that it would be warmly welcomed. And I would be very interested to hear the reaction and comments of other pilots to this. While you've all been talking, I've been making a few notes. And I've listened very carefully to what's been said. Um, a lot of people spend a lot of time talking about what should be done. But having said it, they walk away and do no more. There is a great need to improve a lot of things, a lot of facilities and a lot of experience. Just to put the record straight, <coughs> I think I have four points to make. The first one deals with requirements. To say that it is Mr. Davis of ARB, is it not? There is no difficulty in flying an aeroplane to a quantitative requirement. Um, a schoolboy of 16 with enough courage could do this and then come down and read the book and tell us whether it complies or not. The art of accepting aeroplanes lies not in the quantitative requirements but in the ability of a pilot to look at the requirements, look at what is presently offered on current aeroplanes and take <coughs> a unique decision and decide whether or not this thing is acceptable. We haven't done too badly in recent years 
but one or two aeroplanes recently have posed us with some problems where we've had to produce requirements at very short notice. And it's extremely difficult to know whether these are pitched at the right level. Now, with our fortunately broad experience, we believe this is so, but it's difficult when you're in competition with an experienced constructor's pilot to know and feel that you're doing the right thing. Where the SBAC on seven aeroplanes is in a weak position is in the broad experience of their own pilots. You can look at any <coughs> major constructor and you find time and time again that they only have experience of their own aircraft. And this puts them in a weak position, as I suppose would be true on military aeroplanes, when they are forced into a detailed argument, either with the board or with Boston Down. It actually puts us in an unfairly strong position. And one of the things which should be done, and how many times has this been said, that the test pilot members of SBAC must broaden their experience and must, must get round and fly other people's aeroplanes. There are too many aeroplanes with unique features on which there is so little broad experience. If, for example, and you must let me say this, there is no pilot here tonight other than myself who has practical experience of a 707, a DC-8, a VC-10 and a Trident. And in fact you could take one of those away and you would still be poorly placed in matching our experience. And this is a bad thing. We don't like having to carry the entire responsibility of this alone and I would <coughs> welcome more support from broadly experienced pilots on whom we could call for help and advice in difficult cases. Now the second point is flight test facilities. It is absolutely ridiculous when the United Kingdom not being in competition within itself, opposite BAC and all that, we are in the competition with the Americans internationally and it will take all our resources to do as well as they do. And if we don't survive in the next few years on prototype building, then we don't continue as a significant aviation country. What we need, one of the things we need in the UK is a 24-hour test space with all the facilities. And with all due respect to Boscombe Down and whoever is supposed to defend their hours of work, it is simply impossible that we should be booted out of Boscombe at 5.30 on a Friday and not allowed back in until 9 o'clock on a Monday morning. Now, I am not aware, I'm not aware of the amount <coughs> of flying which goes on at Boscombe, Farnborough and Bedford. But 
If it was all shoveled into Bedford, I don't think it would overload Bedford. This would then free Boscombe down to be substantially an SBAC test base open 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. And Easter and Whitson and August Bank Holiday doesn't mean a damn thing. I think that'll do. <laughs> Mr. President, Mr. Speaker, ladies and gentlemen, I have quite rather a lot of comments uh, to make. They're already comments on previous ones by some of the other speakers. One particular situation, which I'm rather an expert on at the moment, is somebody who I don't know who it was, who shouted their mouth off and said that a certain aeroplane would carry passengers on a certain date. But having found oneself in that position, one has had to go with other people through some rather interesting situations, to put them mildly. And I think it has emphasized one particular thing, which Mr. Bedford did mention in his, uh, in his talk to us, and that was this question of judgment. Now, Mr. Davis has also said quite a lot on this, and I've never seen in one, as has happened in the particular program I'm working on at the moment, a greater need for the use of judgment, a greater need to interpret requirements sensibly, and I also have been very impressed by the way with which people between one organization and another can work together, particularly the pilot side. Now, I think that pilots do have one other thing in common, apart from all that has been mentioned, that they basically don't like lying to one another. And you always get found out and I think that in trying to write the specification for a test pilot, honesty should be one of the items which is placed right up the top of the list. Everybody has, I think, an extremely difficult job, whether they're in the industry, whether they're part of the service acceptance teams, or whether they are in the ARB. But it cuts time, money, and a great deal of ulcers, if at least those various people will tell one another the truth. And certainly, I would like that to be included in any remarks which are attributed to sort of forming up what a test pilot should be. As far as remarks made by Mr. Davis on interchange of pilots, I thoroughly support this. I, what has rather struck me that we attend here to be just terribly British. It is more difficult for a pilot in this country to go and fly one of his other uh, 
well, it's called not opposition, but somebody in BAC flying a Hawker Siddeley aeroplane, then in fact it is to go all the way to Seattle and fly a Boeing aeroplane. Now this shows confused and stupid thinking. And the sooner we do realize that all our object in this country is to have a strong industry and that we are only keen on competing with people outside and not within ourselves, I think we will have a very much better deal on our hands. Because we show this British tech sort of um, characteristic to an almost ludicrous uh, occasion. And we're so keen that we're doing the right thing and we're so morally right on occasions that we lose sight of the main object and that is to build some aeroplanes, some decent aeroplanes, which are operationally efficient and which a few other people outside the country might come and buy. Thank you. I notice in the front row the British Aircraft Corporation and Hawker Siddeley group sitting side by side just down here. I just wonder whether uh, any comment on um, Mr. Trapshaw's uh, suggestion for interchange of pilot from the industry is, uh, is appropriate. Well, each, each appears to be willing to give way to the other. <laughs> Mr. Henry Gardner. President, ladies and gentlemen, that is a challenge which I cannot sit down and do nothing about. But first of all, I would like to say what a splendid idea this has turned out to be. The, uh, the idea of the, of the test pilots group was received extremely well by all who were approached. And I think tonight has been the proof that this in fact has been uh, and is being an extremely valuable debating uh, part of the society. And the whole thing is full of promise. And I'm tremendously impressed with what I've heard this evening. There are, in the whole uh, field of designing a project, so many points that have to be considered that to consider the test pilot's particular point alone makes it look that we are comparatively stupid in so many other areas. I think there is no doubt that when you see the whole picture, you can see where we are hemmed in on so many sides. A design requirement, which is usually written perhaps two or three years before the project is started, is usually some seven years or more later before the aircraft flies. And in that time, the actual circumstances and the requirements are so far different from when the original requirement was written, it is quite obvious that there are changes that one would like to make. And I think this is a point that has to be borne in mind when one feels that there's a compromise that is necessary. Now, I'm quite sure that the enthusiasm we've heard tonight in the Bedford paper is a thing that is inspiring designers generally. And I personally would like to see more of this broad experience. But I believe that uh, there is no real difficulty in getting this done within certain limits. And those limits are obvious to all who are planning uh, these sort of trials. But I personally would welcome much broader experience. And in fact, I think uh, the, the test pilots of BAC are encouraged 
to get as broad an experience as is possible. Mr. Barry Late is also... Uh... Chairman, ladies and gentlemen, I'm not in very good singing voice tonight, so I hope I come over all right. I sense there's a slight element of challenge here that Mr. Garden and I were picked on because we sit together, so uh, always being a sucker for a challenge, here I am. Uh, I think uh, one thing we've seen tonight is that part of the specification for chief for, for test pilots is that they should be able to express themselves and I, I've been very impressed with the clarity and the uh, usefulness of the views put over tonight. Um, I, I think this is very valuable. Now, I want to approach this from the other side. Um, I am a pilot. I've had at least uh, 20 solos, as the 20 wrecks would show anybody. Um, I mention that because I'm primarily, I suppose, what I think is a dirty word, a boffin. But I want to say something which I, I tell younger people if they ask me, and it's this, that you can have uh, certificates and degrees, uh, apprenticeships, or one of them, and, and I had all this, but I never knew anything about aircraft until I got onto some flight testing and mixed with pilots. Because an aeroplane, when you come to use it, and pilots essentially use it, is a very different sort of thing from when you see it as lines on a piece of paper or graphs or figures. So I, uh, I think I'm probably expressing the views of many of the uh, uh, people here who are not pilots but who work on aircraft when they say how much they've learned from pilots and, and uh, uh, how valuable their contribution is when seen from the other side of the fence. Uh, I'm very grateful to the way pilots have taught me my job. Um, with respect to this uh, cooperation which got us on our feet, uh, I, I think that um, the interchange of pilots, of course, is not often, not always left to the companies involved because, particularly military aircraft, they don't own the airplanes. And uh, I just mentioned that uh, one would always hope to get the good offices of those who do own the aircraft and have to give permission for interchange of flying of that sort. But it does so happen that away from the piloting side, the last time I talked with Mr. Gardner was a a somewhat intimate exchange in both directions of information we both wanted. So I'm not subscribing to this view that we never speak civilly to the other side. I think we know them and we do, and I'm sure that at the bottom the pilots get on as well as the other people on two or three or four sides of the industry, whatever it is. Chilton, Ministry of Defence, Navy, late of Bedford. I've been getting just slightly hot under the collar about the remarks that have been made about the Ministry airfields. I've been managing one for the last three years. And I think the point here, and the point that dates back to when Director Perring of the RAE very uh, clear-sightedly saw the need for a national aeronautical establishment, which was Bedford's original name, is the one that the Ministry airfields are paid for by the taxpayer. They run on a very tight budget, and as you probably all know, they're non-profit-making concerns. Um, I feel in the 
arrows that have been shot at the ministry, and they've been fairly brutal ones at times. That industry, however, has the other boot on. Industry is a definitely profit-making concern. And the words of the industrial test pilots, many of whom are friends of mine, and I don't really want to do them any dirt tonight, but they have damned themselves. They have complained about facilities which surely are of their own making, um, their own airfields, their own radar cover, the size of the runways. Um, this must reflect, I feel, to the firms themselves to improve their own airfield facilities or to get together and to use the great power they have in the country and to use some of their own money as well as the taxpayers' money to produce a national aeronautical establishment capable of carrying our own aircraft industry well on into the future. Thank you, Commander Chilton. During the course of the discussion, I've seen Sir Sidney Cam nodding his head in agreement with a number of points that have been made. I wonder whether, Sir Sidney, you would care to contribute to the discussion. I must, I must say that I'd like to confine my remarks to the, uh, the test pilots and uh, to say that uh, for some time I felt that we are not realizing how important the work of the test pilot is to this, in contributing to the success of any design. I, I think it's all wrong to think of an aeroplane which is produced as a result of wind tunnel tests and drawing office work and is then handed over to the test pilot. The test pilot should, of course, work with the design team of, from the beginning of, of, the, of the consideration of the requirement. And that I think I count myself very fortunate because I joined the Hawker organization as, as a result of an invitation from a famous test pilot, Mr. F. D. Raynham. And ever since, I've always felt that the pilots should be our best guides, philosophers, and friends. I'm rather disturbed at some of the remarks made by Mr. Bedford. Are we not in danger of uh, considering that by the extreme use of numerous wind tunnel models and computers, we shall produce an article which will require very little testing. What have we seen? In spite of more and more wind tunnel models, more and more accurate computers, we've never had so many difficulties when the aeroplane has eventually come to be flown. What does that prove? It proves that we're losing our sense of judgment. Won't this, in the end, result in, t in teams being unable to make decisions without extensive tests? Uh, I was also disturbed at the remarks of Mr. Davis and Mr. Trumpshaw. Of course, it's not a question of BAC and all Sydney. It's a question of England versus the rest of the world. That's what we're competing with. And so we must do things quicker and quicker and quicker, not slower and slower and slower. And that's where we must join forces issue with some of the ministry requirements which seem to plan for a job to take longer and longer. After all, it's no good producing the aeroplane which is more or less correct, too late. So we've got to examine the old process of producing aeroplanes, not only for the civil, 
front lines, but for the, as many as Air Force and Navy. We've got to quicken up the old process. I think that is a vital point. One other thing, I must say that I, through my career, I've always received the most tremendous support from all the test pilots that I've worked with. They've been very many. And I must tonight, I should like tonight to take this opportunity of paying a tribute to the work of the test pilots, particularly to the pilots we are now working with. Would Mr. Houghton of Boscombe Down be uh, willing to contribute? Well, if not, I wonder whether perhaps the um, salvo that we were promised from uh, the controller of aircraft would be fired now. Gentlemen, there's uh, Mr. President, well, and gentlemen, uh, there's no uh, salvo coming at all. I came here to listen, uh, very much influenced by the importance of test flying in all our work and by my early background, and I grew up as a simple boffing amongst a lot of extremely able and brilliant test pilots, many of whom I'm glad to say are still great friends of mine. But uh, I must say I find it odd coming, uh, sitting up here, uh, standing up here and uh, as a controller of aircraft, a CA. Uh, when I took the job on a short while back, I imagined it would be a beautiful job in which a benevolent white-haired old gent uh, distributed bags of gold to the industry for making extremely fine aeroplanes, the establishments for putting up very fine facilities, uh, said, bless you, my children, and occasionally signed a CA release. And how wrong I was. The bags of gold are there. My goodness, they're really going out. I mean, something's happening with it, with it, but uh, that's all right. The white hair is certainly all there. Uh, it is coming quick. But the... Uh, <coughs> the uh, the benevolence and so on, don't you believe it? Uh, I, I, I get the impressions uh, that I'm a hatchet-faced, horrible, hard gentleman sitting on a beastly system which is doing its best to ruin aviation. Well, we're not. Uh, we're doing our best. Uh, seriously, though, uh, the ministry is absolutely dependent on the skill of its test pilots, very proud of them, in research, in development, and in production. Test pilots in industry, in the establishments, and on our civil aircraft, of course, on the ARB side. Absolutely vital link in the chain, quite vital. And in the context of my own trade of test piloting, having listened to the discussion earlier and having no uh, intention really of getting up and talking, uh, I mentally noted two points which I hoped would come up during the discussion on which I felt strongly, and that is on the two items of versatility and practice. I think myself that the test piloting fraternity in this country wants to think very seriously about both these points. In the old days there were lots and lots of aeroplanes, they were, they were much cheaper, there were many more prototypes, more types. It was easier for pilots to get around and fly a lot of aeroplanes. Even in those days, however, pilots tended to specialize, particularly the customer's pilots, uh, services and so on, and you found the bomber boys getting certain ideas and the fighter boys getting other ideas and so on. And it was immeasurably valuable in a place like Farnborough to have some test pilots 
while they may have had earlier experience of bombers or fighters, in fact hopped with gay abandon from one aeroplane to another. And you'd have a man who was basically had a lot of experience on small aircraft, testing very intelligently a big aeroplane and vice versa. As a result of this, it was very easy to see that occasionally the specialist customers had got into some just silly old Spanish customs, as it were, and to disentangle them. And I regarded this of immense importance. And one of the difficulties I think that aviation is going through nowadays is that there are less aeroplanes, not because aviation is in, de in decay, because they're jolly expensive things and you can't have as many uh, as, as you used to have. And there is, is much, much more the tendency for people to specialize. I was glad to see this was touched on in the course of the discussion. I'm quite certain myself that it benefits to the designers and so on if pilots who fly their aeroplanes have a wide experience of a wide variety of types and not necessarily similar types, but very different types. That's the first point that I'd, I'd mentally noted and uh, I was hoping would be raised and I'm very glad it has been raised. The second point concerns practice, and this hasn't been raised. And again, it's a function of the fact that uh, there are a limited number of, uh, of aeroplanes uh, lying around. But it seems to me that if you consider the flight testing of a modern aeroplane, it's so complex, it doesn't fly anything like as much as aeroplanes used to fly because you get such masses of information that very often you're held up for the sheer digestion of the, of the, of the, of the information com coming from the automatics on a flight. And as a result, <coughs> it's sometimes difficult, even if you're really pressing on as hard as you can, for test pilots to get as much practice as they'd like by just flying the aeroplane that they're flying in the ordinary course of business. So they have to smarten up and fly other types. And I think uh, everyone concerned with test piloting should be on their watch to make certain that this happens and, and happens adequately. I've heard quite a number of controversies on, over this in the past, but I believe there is a, a, a real problem there of keeping people in really adequate practice. This, of course, links up in a way, in a slight way, with the previous point about versatility. Now, on the question of uh, facilities, money, uh, general support to aeronautics. Um, I'd just like to say, uh, say one thing, not replying in detail to any questions about Boston down, closing down in a miserable sort of way in certain times and that, but it, it, it's this, and I really feel rather passionately on this. We're a small country. Uh, many of us are passionately attached to the aviation scene, passionately attached to it. And for goodness sake, let's work with a certain sense of coherence all of us. This has been touched on again in relation to the delicate problems of competitive industry, different shareholders and so on. I fully understand. That's understandable. But nevertheless, let's work together with uh, uh, real coherence and see the other chap's point of view. And this applies particularly, I think, the, some of the awkward questions raised by the test pilots in relation to the help they get in terms of uh, airspace, enough room to to, 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 to play with, uh, facilities on the ground, control facilities, uh, radar facilities and so on, and length of runways as mentioned and so on. Well now, 
It does seem to me that if there is any burning question in which people, a responsible group of professionals, really feels something is going wrong, it's awfully important that they don't take no for an answer, as it were. That's one of the reasons I think it's so good that we've got a, a seed shell, a really professional uh, ganging together, as it were, of the test piloting fraternity under the auspices of this old society. But, you see, I believe myself that if something is obviously going wrong, that in fact people should either be persuaded that it isn't going wrong or alternatively should get an intelligent answer as to why, in point of fact, uh, it's taking longer than, 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 than should be for the thing to be put right. Now, I don't really think that it's awfully useful, as it were, to believe really that things are wrong, but that they're really wrong because there are a lot of clots lying around who don't understand uh, how to put it right, and they haven't got any money anyway, and it's all pretty miserable in some mysterious day somewhere. I think myself that if any, on any aspects of our flight testing uh, 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 activities, uh, things are palpably wrong, then get the thing argued, and get the thing argued responsibly until you're satisfied that either you're wrong or the other chap's wrong. And if you think the other chap's wrong, then go on going after him. I'm certain this is the, the, the right way to, uh, to go about our business. Uh, finally, on the question of uh, this uh, new venture, uh, I think it's a magnificent idea. No one has really said it's overdue. Well, I think it's overdue. It should have happened a long time ago. And uh, the uh, keen nature of the discussion and the useful nature of the discussion this evening has more than confirmed me in that view. I believe this group will go on from strength to strength. I quite believe that there's a hell of a future in this business and that the missiles won't knock the pilots out of the sky. On the other hand, I don't believe there should be an awful lot of, as it were, really spit-in-your-eye competition. Missiles are with us, no mistake about it, they're going to stay. And so are aeroplanes. And uh, we've got to learn to live together. But I think there's no justification at all for the fear that the test pilots will uh, be put out of business by missiles. So as a result, a group of this sort, I think, is assured of a long and flourishing existence. And I myself will do all I can to see that from the ministry angle, we give it all the, the, the support imaginable. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I'm sorry to uh, have to cut the discussion short at this point. Uh, I have no doubt that it could go on for a very long time indeed. But um, I had set a deadline date of half past seven, and we are way past this now. So I propose to thank on your behalf Mr. Bedford for the lecture that he's given us. I would like to remark on the numbers that have been attracted by this first group lecture. Uh, I, I won't say that I haven't seen this hall more full than it is tonight, but it wasn't a lecture, it was another occasion, um, and that's another story. This is, I think, the fullest that the hall has been for a lecture during my period of presidency, and it does show beyond any question the interest in the formation of this group and the approval of the formation of this 
test pilots group within the society. As regards the lecture itself, I was particularly impressed by Mr. Bedford's plea for the integration of the test pilot into all phases of aviation. I suppose it is probably true to say that in the very nature of his work, uh, and in respect of his work, a test pilot can be, and almost inevitably must be, something of a solitary individual. Um, they are, I think, um, usually regarded as gregarious in, uh, in social life, but so far as work is concerned, the, um, the importance of the work, the uh, detailed nature of the work, and I suppose the loneliness of the work must tend to produce um, something of a solitary nature in, in test pilots, and Mr. Bedford has made a, a plea for the integration of the test pilot into all other phases of work, and I think this is a, a most valuable plea to have made, and he has shown in his paper uh, some ways in which this can be avoided. I hope very much that the group itself may help in this respect. I was also impressed by the simple and lucid statement it's an obvious one when one thinks about it, but for my own part I hadn't thought about it before, uh, the way in which he delineated the job that the test pilot has to do. What did he do? What happened? What do we do now? Were the three questions that um, he posed as epitomizing the work that the test pilot has to do. And he made some very useful comments, particularly on the last question. I myself was also um, Im impressed by his plea for uh, airspace for R&D test flying, and this despite the disagreement of my old friend Tom Frost and perhaps one or two others on this. I don't say that uh, uh, this is necessarily a must, but it is, I think, the first time this point has been canvassed, and whether it is right that there should be uh, airspace for R&D test flying or not is a matter for argument and decision, but at least the way it's been ventilated this evening will ensure that it doesn't go by default. Finally, I think I was impressed as much as anything by the specification that he laid down for a test pilot and which has been added to by others, uh, I think particularly by Brian Trubshaw, so that my own conclusion is that if anyone is found who fulfills all the requirements laid down in that specification, his name is going to be the Angel Gabriel. This has, without any question at all, been a most valuable lecture, uh, a valuable inaugural lecture for the group, and I hope that you will agree with this assessment of it and will show your appreciation and thanks to Mr. Bedford by giving him a most generous measure of applause. Well, that concludes our formal business for this evening.